right. Well, if you could turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, please. And while you're turning to Acts, I want to share with you a couple of my woes from the last several years. Not like, whoa, but you know, some troubles. So some of you may know that for years, our basement uh, has had a flooding problem because we live in Tennessee and uh, we live at the bottom of a little hill and, you know, flooding. So every time it rained more than like an inch and a half, we're down there bailing buckets of water out and mopping the floor and moving furniture. And it's quite a hassle. And every bucket of water I bailed out is really just flood management. It's not addressing the problem. And because of that, we, we were always in fear of the next rain and had no lasting peace. Or, uh, you know, another trouble, a more recent trouble, is our backyard has a couple patches that are pretty inundated with poison ivy. And we've kind of lost our yard to it. And we're not able to use what's rightfully ours in the same way. And so you get these little little three-leafed shoots. I can draw you a picture if you don't know what poison ivy looks like. I know it really well now. You get these little shoots popping up all over the place. And you, you pluck those shoots out and you think it's gone. And a couple days later, there's even more. Because every little sprout that you pull out of the ground without addressing the root of the problem is just weed management. And you don't get any lasting freedom. Bailing water, plucking weeds, they are half measures. And in the same way, many of us are stuck in some spiritual half measures with sin. Sin management. Instead of keeping the water out, we're just bailing out buckets. And instead of pulling out the roots of the poison ivy, we're just trimming the weeds when they pop up. And instead of repenting of our sins, we're, we're just managing them. So we don't have any lasting peace. We don't have any lasting freedom. We can't enjoy what's rightly ours. The Prince of Heaven literally shed his blood to buy you something better, to purchase for you a peace and a freedom that cannot be taken from you that you can actually enjoy, that you can actually live in. Jesus lavished us with so much goodness and so much peace. Why should we keep on settling for less? We are going to pause the Thessalonians series today and look at Acts chapter 3 because I, have a vi- I don't mean a vision like I've seen things, but I mean I have a clear vision from the Lord, from Scripture, of something that I'm hungry for us to have as a body. I want this for our church. I want this for me, and I want this for you. And here's what I want. Here's what I see. Times of refreshing. Don't we need that? That's what Jesus is offering us today in Acts chapter 3. Room to breathe. Relief from a burdened conscience that won't stop bugging you. The real felt love and presence of Jesus in our lives. Walking in the light of the dawn of the resurrection, rather than settling for like the the dusky gloaming. Waking up in faith. That's what he's offering us. And here's, 
how the Lord is going to lead us into those green pastures. This is from Acts chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 18 and go through the first part of verse 20. Starting in verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The key word here is repent. This is a repentance sermon. You didn't know that when you were coming to church today. Well, there's two kinds of repentance sermons. There's the, like, shame on you, repent. And then there's the, the kind that I intend to preach today by God's grace, which is like, let's go, guys. There are so many riches in Christ ahead of us that we are saying no to by our half measures with sin. We're closing our hands to Jesus if we don't study repentance, practice repentance. We're saying, no, thank you. I don't want more. Why would we do that? Repentance, it's not a sad and dreary word. It's the aqueduct that brings us refreshment from the throne room of heaven. That's what it is. So we're going to look at repentance. We're going to take the first steps together by God's grace and striving forward into these promised times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. So we're going to look at three points. Big surprise, I preached three-point sermons. (laughs) How do I repent? Like practically, we're going to get into what does it look like? Why should I repent? And where does the power come from? Because we all know it's really, really hard. So let's go. Number one, how do I repent? Well, before I actually answer that question, I want to give you a few things that repentance is not, because we commonly misunderstand this very sort of Christianese lingo, this word of repentance. So here's a few things. One, repentance is not a conversion experience. That's not what we mean. It's not something you do one time when you come to Jesus. It's your constant work of faith. When Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses in 1517 to the church doors in Wittenberg, the first one was like the first stone of an avalanche of the Protestant Reformation. And it said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. He's totally right. Jesus's whole preaching career is summed up in the words, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus wants us to be repenting people constantly, not the one time when you first prayed the sinner's prayer. We are repenters if we're Christians. The second thing repentance is not, is it's not just an emotion. I don't feel repentant. I do repentance, okay? Don't confuse remorse with repentance. In the same way that I, I, there's a word for this, and I can't remember what it is, but like all robins are birds, but not all birds are robins. You know what I'm talking about? All the repentant are remorseful, but not all the remorseful are repentant. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, felt remorse, and hanged himself. And he ran from Jesus to his own end. Simon Peter betrayed Jesus, felt remorse, and repented. And when he saw the risen Christ on the shore, he jumped out of that boat and ran straight to him. Feeling sorry is a half measure. 
alone, when left alone. It's a half measure, it's weed management. There's more work to be done beyond that if we're going to be repentant. And so lastly, repentance is not a conversion experience, it's not an emotion. Lastly, repentance is not merely confession. When we confess, we are on the road to repentance. If you have repented, then you have confessed your sins. But don't think that you can just say, I'm walking in the light right now, here's my sin, and then go back and do it again with no change. That's not apprehending the mercy of God in Christ. That's not repentance. It's just water management, weed management. Definitely not repentance unto life. None of those things on their own are repentance because repentance is turning. Physically, emotionally, spiritually turning from sin to God. Right? There's always, when you're turning, you're always turning from one thing to another thing or it's not turning. So that's, that's what we're going to get into is how do we repent? How do we practice that kind of holy turning from sin to God. Well, Peter gives us two words in our passage that we just read. This is a sermon that Peter's preaching, but written down by Luke. Peter says two words or, or two phrases that together describe the whole of repentance. We see them in verse 19. The first is the word repent, and the second is turn back. Repent and turn back. Now, repent, the word is metanoia, and it's change your mind. That's the, the Greek word that lies underneath that. It's talking about the sort of renewal of your mind. The second, turning back, is talking about changing your behavior. Repentance takes both of those, changing your minds and changing our behavior. So let's think about that. First, starting with changing your mind, how should our minds change in repentance? Well, first, by just calling a spade a spade. You have to recognize sin as sin. You can't repent from what you don't know is a sin or what you're unwilling to acknowledge is a sin. So, um, for instance, this is the way this normally happens, is we have to be reading our Bibles, don't we? We have to be engaged in the Word of God, read and taught and preached. Otherwise, how are we going to know? How, how is the Spirit going to confront us the normal way that we get conviction of what sin is in our life is through engaging these sort of ordinary means that God uses, the Word and prayer, and the Holy Spirit uses them to lay His finger on something and say, that's sin. It's like a, the Spirit uses like a flashlight in the darkness of our own hearts where we're, we don't even know the furniture in the room, and He shines a flashlight and goes, see that thing right there. So maybe you're, you're reading Second Thessalonians. This was a example that came to mind because it's close to my heart. You're reading Second Thessalonians in your Bible reading plan, and you come across Paul saying, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work. And you've probably read that 30 times, but this time you read it and you go, ooh, idleness, not busy at work. You get a little pang in your gut and you, you realize, like, man, I never thought about it before. I never thought of my laziness or my, when I sit down at the desk and there's this work that I don't want to do, that I maybe kind of do these other things that, I, that are more fun, right? That, I've never thought of that as sin, but now I see here that, that it is. Now, if that, if that happens to you at this point, what you're doing is you're just seeing sin for what it is, sin. You might not even feel any which way about it. You might not feel sorry 
You might not grieve it. You might not feel mournful or, or anything. You might just go, oh, well, that's sin. Okay. That's the first step. That's important. And emotion is not necessary here, friends, at this point. Second, based not on how we feel, but by God's word saying sin is sin, we take that sin to the cross. That's the next step in faithful obedience. It's the next step in repentance. And this is the part where you really start to dig that poison ivy up by the roots. Weed management's just, you, you read sin is sin, and you're like, well, I'll just try harder not to be lazy. Right? That's a half measure. We want to get these roots plucked out. So you go deeper. You pray about it. You talk to a brother or sister in Christ about it. You reflect, you read scripture. And maybe you come to the realization that you're believing something that's not true. So my laziness at work is actually me believing that my ultimate good, my chief end, my purpose is my comfort and leisure. That I'm my own master. I am the captain of my destiny, master of my fate. Well, that's not true. So down below the sin, the little weed sprouts of laziness lies a deeper sin, a root problem of faith, of lack of faith, not believing something about Jesus, that he's the captain of my destiny. So when I take it to the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ confronts me with the truth that my ultimate good is actually the God, God's glory, not my comfort. It shows the truth that counteracts that lie that I'm living out below those little sprouts of sin. And that's when I get my head and heart around the truth that what first seemed like a little sin of laziness is actually me shaking my fist at the throne of heaven, saying, I do what I want. I live for myself. That little sin of mine just got really weighty in light of the cross. So that's the first couple steps. The third step of changing our minds then is to start to feel something. Emotions, remorse, they come into play, into play. Because when we see the cross of Jesus Christ, we take our sins small as they may seem to the cross, it should do something in us. By way of illustration, Charles Spurgeon has um, better illustrations than I can come up with, so I'm going to use his, okay? Might feel a little outdated, but, you know, uh, it's Spurgeon, so we're just going to use it anyway. So he tells the story about a poor old woman whose only son had been murdered, and all she had left in the world was one little treasure, a little beautiful knife that a loved one had given her once with a ivory handle inlaid with silver, just this really uh, stunning little treasure. And because everything else had been taken from her, she just loved this knife. It meant the world to her, and it was so valuable to her. Spurgeon asks, what can I say to get her to throw the knife away? And he says, well, it's quite easy. I'll tell her, that's the knife that killed your son. Without taking good long looks at the gospel of Jesus, we will never have fuel for the fires of repentance. Our sins will always seem too dear to us 
to let go of them. Until we see the treasure of heaven on a Roman execution rack, pierced by our ivory knives. I did that to him. My sin put him there. Laziness killed the Son of God. Then we can start to mourn and grieve it and hate the sin and actually want to change, actually want to grow and to follow Jesus more. That's how repentance changes our minds, changes our minds. You see how we've gone from, I didn't know I was sinning, to, oh, the Bible says my sin's a sin, to the work of taking it to the cross and examining it in light of Jesus, all the way to being wrecked. That's a mind change. It's a work of God in us. It's a work of faith. And that's half of it. So changing our minds is the first part of repentance. The second part is changing our behavior. Now, I hasten to add this because behavior modification alone is not repentance. The the point isn't that Jesus wants you to be a really good little boy and girl. Jesus wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants your faith. He wants your love. It's not about your behavior. And without our minds being renewed first, that mind change we were just talking about will never change our behavior in a way that's pleasing to God. But on the other hand, if our minds have been renewed by the gospel, we must not neglect to live that change out. Just like Ryan was talking about his love for Alicia, if When they got married, if he stopped pursuing her, if he stopped opening the door for her and loving her and, you know, orienting his life around her, it would be a travesty. It would be some sort of weird half measure of love. So when the gospel renews our minds and we're wrecked by our sin, we must therefore then keep going into change of behavior. So how do we do that? Well, Peter says, I mean, he says it perfectly, turn back. Notice, Peter doesn't say stop. True repentance is never just stopping sinful behavior. If you're trying to dig a ditch, right? You got to get this big ditch dug and you're standing there with the hammer, trying to dig with the hammer. Is that going to work very well? No. But it's not enough to put the hammer down. You can't put it down and go, oh, there. You got to pick up the shovel. It's not enough to just stop doing the thing that you know to be sin. You have to start turning to God. You have to fill your hands with something. Empty your hands of your sin and fill them with Christ. True heart change moves into our hands and feet. So this is permission to make a plan you're struggling with the sin that you're fighting to repent of, make a plan. Take countermeasures. Put up defenses. Maybe that means accountability. Maybe it means software on your computer. Make a plan. It's not unspiritual. It's godly obedience. Chase after some fresh, obedience in Christ. Westminster Shorter Catechism, 
Number 87 asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And it, I'm summarizing because I didn't write it down, but it says repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner uh, becoming aware of his sin turns from the sin to God, apprehends the mercy of Christ, uh, mercy of God in Christ, grieves and mourns and hates his sin, and then endeavors after new obedience. Endeavoring after new obedience is what we're talking about here. Repentance isn't repentance until you're looking off into the distance going, I'm going to keep going in this, a long obedience in the same direction, as Eugene Peterson put it. We got to change our minds and our behavior to drop your idols and pick up the cross. Now, you might be saying at this point, we just went through basically six steps of repentance, right? You're like, okay, John, that's kind of exhausting. That's a lot of work. Like, do I really have to, like every sin in my life? Yes. Yes, we do. Just like Ryan was talking about, we are redeemed through Christ's work on the cross. We are saved by grace, not by earning it with repentance. But those saved by grace love their Savior and want to follow him. We repent. That's the Christian life. It's the work of the kingdom of heaven, and it is glorious. Repentance is not dreary and dismal. It's fantastic because you actually get free in Christ. I can't stress that enough. When my basement is flooding, we settle for living in the top half of our house. We don't get to use the full thing. When our yard is full of poison ivy, we settle for playing on the driveway. Are you tired of settling? I am. Jesus has purchased for you and for us the whole house and the whole yard. Life, freedom, peace, joy, the felt presence and nearness of Christ, comfort. He's laid out a whole feast for us, and here we are eating saltines on the kitchen floor. Let's go. The time for half measures. The time for sin management is over for me and for us. Let's get those roots out together. What do you think? Should we do that? Yeah. Number two, why? Why bother? Why should I repent? Peter gives us two reasons to repent, two purpose statements. I, I've said this a thousand times. When I read my Bible, I use a pencil. And I circle, actually put a square, a box around purpose statements. Words like, so that, that, because. It helps me orient myself to why. Because I'm that stubborn kid that doesn't want to obey until I get a reason. <laughs> this helps my heart. Peter gives us two that's in verse 19. In verse 19, first he says to repent that your sins may be blotted out. Repent that, in order that, so that your sins may be blotted out. Okay. Um, Shakespeare's Macbeth, Act 5. I'm not going to quote it. There's children in the room. Uh, <laughs> after Lady Macbeth and her husband have murdered 
King Duncan. Uh, a gentlewoman and a doctor observe Lady Macbeth sleepwalking. And she walks into the room and asleep and goes up to this water basin and starts scrubbing her hands and scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. And what's she trying to get rid of? Bloodstains. The bloodstains that aren't actually there, but that she feels to be there. That just won't come out. And the gentlewoman says to the doctor, I've seen her do this regularly, sometimes for like 15, 20 minutes. Don't you know what that feels like? You have the stain of sin on you, the guilt and the shame, and no matter what you do, it won't come out. So you bury it, you hide it, you distract yourself. I know what that feels like. Repentance is turning to the crucified, risen Jesus and following after him because his blood is the only power in the universe that can wash your hands clean. That's it. What can wash my sin away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious, precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Wouldn't you like to stop sleepwalking? Wake up. Have your sins blotted, washed by Jesus? You see, repentance is not a dreary duty that you have to do to become better people. It's a gift from the king to you so you can live again, so you can breathe again. That weight of guilt that feels like it will never go away can actually be gone in this life. The crippling shame that you think you have to hide and distract yourself from can actually get taken away from you we receive it by faith and follow Jesus in repentance, apprehending the mercy of God in Christ, that your sins may be blotted out. That's a good reason. The second reason that Peter gives us comes from verse 20, the second that, the little square in my Bible. Repent and turn back that, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I get emotional just saying that. Times of refreshing. John Calvin isn't known for being eloquent about times of refreshing. We picture him as serious and, you know, long-bearded. But I love this. This is what he says in his Institutes of the Christian Religion about these times of refreshing. He says this, quote, the comfort which is produced by faith as, men, as when a man laid low by an awareness of sin and smitten with the fear of God, afterwards beholding his goodness and the mercy, grace, and salvation obtained through Christ. And he looks up, begins to breathe, takes courage, and passes, as it were, from death unto life. I want that. I want that for you. Times of refreshing from the Lord. It's like spitting out that little straw that we've been breathing through and taking big gulps of fresh air. 
The Bible tells us time and again that refreshing times, that renewal, that revival, real life, these things flow out of repentance from the hand of God. That's how this works. I'll give you two examples. First, let me read to you a chunk from Psalm 51, verses 7 to 12. You're welcome to turn there if you like. It may be up on the screen as well. Uh, Psalm 51, this is written by King David. After he slept with another man's wife and then had her husband murdered. This is his repentance psalm. He says this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. David's crying out to God in repentance, but he's also teaching us. It's Holy Scripture and it's profitable for teaching. When all we hear is sorrow, through repentance, we can hear joy and gladness. When God breaks bones, it's so that he can mend them through repentance and we can rejoice. And the end of repentance is the joy of our salvation. Times are refreshing from the presence of the Lord. You know, it's probably, repentance is probably less like weeding and more like surgery. Jesus is eager to heal us, and he's skilled to heal us. He wants to make us happy and whole again and full of joy and health. Not to say there won't be sorrow and suffering, but the joy of the salvation is a joy that transcends your circumstances. But for him to do that, we need to go under the knife. We need to lie down on that table and entrust ourselves to the hands of the physician, like David did. The second example of renewal and refreshing times coming from repentance by the hand of God. This is from Daniel chapter 9. I love this chapter. It's too long to read today. I mean, it's, you can read it at home. It's not too long for you to read. It's too long for me to read out loud right now. But here's the context is God's people have been sent into exile in Babylon and have been there for 70 years away from the presence of God in the temple, away from the temple, away from the whole system, and away from the promised land, all of that, away from home, and they're hurting. But that exile has been a consequence of their sins, their constant rejection of God. So now Daniel is one of these people in exile. You know, he's kind of a, a big deal in Babylon at this point, and he's reading the book of Jeremiah, uh, that's the book that most of us stop in when we're in our reading plans. Like we feel proud that we've made it through numbers. Then we get to Jeremiah and then we peace out. Well, he, he endured and Daniel's reading Jeremiah and Jeremiah says, you know, it's going to be about 70 years and the Lord's going to bring his people back. And Daniel's struck to the heart and he kneels down and he prays a beautiful long prayer of repentance. Daniel 9 is worth reading. He's confessing his sin in this prayer. He's confessing his people's sin, and he's turning from the sin to God. And at the end of his prayer, this is an incredible scene. He looks out the window, and it says he sees the man Gabriel, the angel, 
coming to him in swift flight over the city. There's a sight for sore eyes. Imagine looking out your window and you see a man flying toward you across the skyscrapers. That's what he sees. And Gabriel says to Daniel, this is in verse 23, quote, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you for you are greatly loved. What just happened? Daniel opens his mouth to begin a prayer of repentance. And before he can even get a word out, God is so eager to send times of refreshing and good news to his servant that he sends a word from the throne to one of his messengers, go minister to my servant right now. Fly to Daniel. Why? For you are greatly loved. Gabriel doesn't just come to cheer him up. He comes to let him know that God has heard his cries and is restoring them to the promised land. He's actually bringing freedom. Times of refreshment straight from the presence of the Lord. I'm convinced that the Lord is asking us at Christ Church to pursue deep, true repentance together. Maybe like never before. And I'm convinced equally that he is completely eager to send his times of refreshment. He wants to. I don't know if you can imagine it. I would encourage you to try what it would look like here if we all individually and together felt that we had room to breathe. The weightlessness of the, the guilt and the shame lifted off of our shoulders. That you don't have to change the subject from anything because you're living out in the open with integrity. Friends and loved ones, seeing the light of Christ in us and turning from death to life. I think if just 10 of us lived all out for God, holding nothing back, the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord will blow us away. Let's try it. I think it's a pretty good reason to repent. But it's hard. So question number three, lastly, I'll conclude with this. I'll keep it brief. Where does the power come from? What we need isn't intellectual persuasion that repentance is important. Right? I can't dangle enough carrots in front of us for us to truly repent unto life. There has to be a power. And I know that for some of us, there are some things that we're fine um, repenting of. It's easy to say, well, okay, this thing's not very helpful in my life. I'll turn from it to God. But I would be willing to bet that there are some things in most of our lives that we are unwilling to talk about with Jesus because we're afraid he might challenge us and ask us to give something up that we love, something we cherish. We're afraid that we don't have the strength. We're afraid that we don't have the power to let go of that thing. Well, if you can relate to that at all, then I want to give you Acts 5.31. Acts 5.31. It says, God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior, purpose statement, little box, to give repentance to Israel, and forgiveness of sins. 
When it says that God exalted Jesus, it's talking about, one, God raising Jesus from the dead. This is the resurrection. And two, ascending him up into heaven and seating him at the right hand of the Father. The exaltation of Christ is his resurrection and heavenly session. That's what we call that. And the reason why God did that is to put the king in power who would give the gift of repentance to his people. Repentance flows out of the resurrection. So if Jesus died on the cross and stayed dead, then we have no hope because there's no leader and there's no savior on the throne at the right hand of God giving gifts to his children. We would have no way to receive the gift of faith, of justification, or the gift of repentance. But he did not stay dead. Jesus Christ was resurrected. He was exalted. And here's what I want you to know. If you trust Jesus to pay for your sins and to have given you his righteousness, then you have the power to repent from anything. Not in yourself, but by the Spirit of God who lives in you. You do have the power. It will not be impossible with God, and he will get the glory. Because repentance is a parable of resurrection. Turning from death to life. And because repentance is turning from death to life, we need resurrection power. And that's precisely what the Spirit gives us. So no, you cannot muster it up. You can't try hard enough to do the six steps of repentance in point number one. You can't earn it. You can't brag about it. You can't get after it in your own strength, but you can open your hands, trust to Jesus to give you the gift of repentance, and then follow in faith and obedience. That's what we can do. That's our part, is to faithfully obey, trusting him to give us the resources. Trust in his death and trust in his resurrection. And he will bring you from death to life. A thousand micro-resurrections until he returns. And sets all things new. Let me pray for us before we go to the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, I feel um, uh, almost scared of the season of repentance that you're calling me into and us into. And I just want to name that, that it is a little scary. Um, there are things in our lives that we cherish and do not want to give up. And I think that that feels like idolatry in my heart. So we're believing what you say about repentance we're believing what you say, that you want to refresh us. You want to revive us and renew us and make us more like you. We believe you, but help us believe you. Give us that power. You overcame the grave. You can overcome all the deaths in our hearts. Give us that power now to follow you. And would you pour out your time of refreshing on this body? For your sake and our joy. Amen. Amen.